This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. Good evening, everybody. Am I audible in the back of the auditorium? Somewhat? Okay, good. My name is Dr. Jim Edwards. I'm the Bruner Welch Professor Emeritus of Theology here at Whitworth. It's a pleasure to welcome you this evening to a lecture by Mr. Aydin Aydin. Aydin is a guide from Turkey, and I see a lot of people whom I know also know Aydin. If you have been on a tour with Aydin, raise your hand if you would. Okay. There we go. I first met Aydin 12 years ago. And in these intervening 12 years, my wife and I have taken eight tours to Turkey with him. And in those eight tours, I've learned three things that I want to tell you about in my introduction. First of all, Aydin is an exceptionally intelligent historian of Turkey. I've spent most of my life reading and studying New Testament texts, and I have constantly been impressed by the amount of knowledge that he has of Turkey. Secondly, Aydin is one of the most gracious and accommodating tour hosts I've ever seen. He makes as a special task, a special challenge to get to know everybody on his tours. And no matter who that person is, to spend special time with each individual on that tour. And when you go with him to Turkey or to Greece, as I have done many times, every person feels that he or she has been cared for. And the third reason that I think Aydin is great is because he gets me out of trouble. Now, when I go to Turkey, I am not as well behaved as I am at Whitworth. Several years ago, we were in a town called Miletus. It was Sunday morning. And we wanted to have a, I wanted to have a church service. Aydin says we shouldn't do that because it's illegal to have a church service um, out in the open in Turkey. I said, well, it won't look like a church service. We just want to have a, a um, sing a, a hymn or two, and I'll give a short message, and that'll be it. We'll pray. Okay, we do it. I thought it went off fine, but no sooner had we finished than several of the officials at the site pull Aydin aside and just tear into him. Now, I can't speak Turkish, so I didn't know what was going on, but I knew that Aydin was in trouble. And it was just fur flying for about 10 minutes, and all of a sudden, it stopped, and he came back. And I said, Aydin, what went on there? And he said, well, they accused us of having a church service, and they were very angry about that. And then I finally convinced them that we didn't. And I said, Aydin, how did you convince them that we didn't have a church service? And he says, well, I just told them that we didn't take an offering. <laughs> That's the kind of guy he is. I want you to welcome Aydin Aydin to talk about Turkey. One further thing, he's going to talk for 50 minutes, 5-0, 
and then we're going to have a chance for questions, interaction, and answers afterwards. Hello. Oops. Hello, everybody. It's wonderful to feel at home, away from home. And uh, thank you very much for the warm welcome. And I hope uh, you will enjoy this dry lecture for um, When my guests come to Turkey and they ask about the uh, question Turkish politics, my tours. So Due to technical difficulties, recording was interrupted at this point of the presentation. We will now rejoin the event in progress. We're found. The first one was British cookbook. The second one was the ontology of German humor. <laughs> and the third one was history of Turkish democracy. <laughs> so that short history was interrupted with a military coup last year uh, at, uh, in the middle of July. And believe it or not, the day before that coup, I went to Rhodes to cycle in the Greek islands with a girl from Spokane, Washington. And her mother is right here, Madeline uh, Mahug. And I heard the coup from Madeline. So I cycled 60 miles. I'm somewhere in Rhodes, and she's in the capital city of Rhodes in another hotel. I don't know where she is. I'm somewhere. And I checked my uh, phone, and I saw that she says, Aydan, there's a coup in Turkey. And I said, Madeline, I mean, in, by myself, just ready to go into the bed after 60 miles riding in the middle of July. I said, Madeline, what did you drink this morning? And I went back bed without even believing that there was a coup. And the next morning, 5 a.m., my phone was ringing. A phone 509, Spokane uh, phone number, calling me and checking me how I was. And I didn't know that the coup was happening, and people were on the other side of the phone, were so excited, and asking me about questions, and finally they realized that I'm safe, my family is safe, so they were released. This is how I learned the coup. You know? And since then, many of my friends asked me questions, I don't know what's going on in Turkey. Frankly, since then, I have been questioning myself with the same question, what's going on in Turkey? Okay, this lecture will be in two parts. The first part, it's written, and I'll give that section to you. The second part is not written, because that's history being made right now. And the things that I tell you about the second part might not be true at all with the evidences three or four months later, or they will be correct. I don't know. But... All the information that I gain from my ex-military friends who are colonels or one-star generals in Turkish army, Turkish media, 60% supporting Erdogan, our president, 40% against him, all those informations, and all the census that I'm getting from my society, and I figure out that what happened in the coup. That will be the second section, okay? The last 10 minutes. But in the first 40 minutes, I will summarize the journey of that coup uh, in 40 minutes. But that will be a long journey, so please stay with me. And during this lecture, I will talk about certain concepts, and I want you to remember two pieces. The first one is secularism or secularization, 
And when I say secularism, everybody knows that. It's separation of the states and religious affairs, states' neutral stance against all religions, freedom for religious groups and identities. More or less, the same wordings will be included in uh, different constitutions, Turkish constitution, American constitution, more or less. That's the general definition of secularism. But secularization is a process, even though secularism is a concept. So secularization is a gradual process of the social change through which the public influence of religion or religious thinking declines. So you can be a very pious Christian, but in your relationship, with a Muslim friend like me, or a Jewish friend, or an atheist friend. You know, you don't put your faith straight into the front. It's operating behind you. It's behind you. It's there, but it's not that much visible. And that's secularization in your behaviors, in your actions, in your life. And secularization in Europe started with the Reformation, I will say, and evolved until the 20th century. So it's evolutionary process, okay? And since there are various conceptualization and understanding of secularism all around the world, my aim in this lecture is just focus on Turkish secularization process, not to compare that one with the others. Okay, the next concept that I would like to focus in this one is nation-states. And the emergence of the nation-states goes back to late 19th century. After the American Revolution and the French Revolution, we have got the concept of the nation-states and the emergence of the nation-states. And this concept, the emergence of this concept, played an important role for the collapse of the Ottoman Empire, the political entity of the Turkish people, in the 19th and the 20th century, till the foundation of the Turkish Republic. And to be able to understand Turkish nation-state or Turkish identity, Turkishness, we have to go back to a little bit to Ottoman time. That means that's going back to our genes, political genes and the social genes emerged from that Ottoman history. So, it's a new concept. So until the 19th century, the societies and the political entities were not organized in terms of nation-states. And especially in the Ottoman society, the definition was made by religions. So the religious identity, Muslimness or Eastern Orthodox or Armenian, they were all religious terminology in the Ottoman society. And Secularization process in Europe started earlier than this nation-state process. So 16th century, secularization process started. 19th century, the emergence of the nation-states. That's Europe. But in the Ottoman Empire, you will see the map of the Ottoman Empire, and uh, we can summarize the Ottoman history between 1300 and 1922. The heydays of the Ottoman Empire is in the 16th and 17th centuries, it, Ottoman Empire was the strongest political entity controlling Mediterranean, entire Mediterranean, especially Eastern Mediterranean ports. The most powerful military uh, uh, states, the, the richest states, 
in Europe that time. But the things started to change in the, at the end of the four, uh, 15th century, in 1492, the discovery of the new continent, America, Magellan making the first journey around the world, changed the destiny of the Ottoman Empire. So the Ottoman Empire started to lose its power because fresh money was coming from west to the old continent. And the Silk Road lost its importance because now we have got new trade routes. So the Eastern Mediterranean ports lost their importance, and we have got the emergence of the new powers in Western Europe. That's the decline of the Ottoman Empire. But that's political decline. That's economic decline. But the social decline came with the emergence of the concept of the nation states. So all the ethnic groups who kept their ethnic identity intact in the Ottoman Empire revolted against the Ottoman administration to have their nation state. That was the final blow on the Ottoman Empire. Okay, so Ottoman society defined themselves as the state in the center in Constantinople or Istanbul and the subjects at the periphery. And the relationship between the state and the subjects at the periphery was defined with the religions. And they divided the society in different religious groups. The first one was Muslims, regardless of their race, Turkish, Kurdish, Arabic, Bosnian, you name it. If they were Muslims, they were a group together. And they were, their spiritual leader was Sheikhul Islam, the leader of Islam. And uh, the Sultan himself was the caliphate, the ruler and the protector of the Islamic world. That's the first group. The second group was Eastern Orthodox people, regardless of their race. Again, Greek, Bulgarian, Slavic, Ukrainian, Moldovian, it doesn't matter. Polish, whatever they are. It was Eastern Orthodox people. They are not Greek Orthodox, they are not Bulgarian Orthodox, they are just Eastern Orthodox. And the third group is Armenians. They are different than the Eastern Orthodox, so they have got their own society, and they are patriarch or ethnarch. So patriarch is a religious terminology to, tell, to talk about their religious leadership, and ethnarch is the, and also the same person, using the, both titles, uh, the leader of the ethnos or the nation. And the last group were, was the Jews, and their chief rabbi was their spiritual leader and ethnarch. So that's the Ottoman society, but all the definition is through religion. So religious identity is your identity, not ethnic identity. And the historical phases of secularization in Turkish history actually doesn't start in the New Republic. It started earlier than the New Republic, and we have got for example, social reformation in the Ottoman Empire uh, between the mid-19th century and early 20th century, and then especially between 1908 and 1920, constitutional monarchy in Ottoman Empire and the emergence of a group, uh, emergence of an Ottoman elite called Young Turks. You know, some of you might be familiar with this concept even in English. So in English, Young Turk means that restless young people coming to try, coming to change everything, put the world upside down. Well, the young Turks in the Ottoman Empire tried to do the same thing, tried to do the same thing. What it means is that they got education in Europe, they got 
heavily influenced uh, by the French Enlightenment and all the concepts that they learned there, they wanted to apply the old Ottoman system and they wanted to change everything. So Ataturk was actually one of those young Turks, but he didn't make, he couldn't make the high ranks among them. It was, the, it was his luck and it was Turkey's luck because we save him for the later periods, his capacity, his genius for the later periods. And 1911 and 1912, we have got a catastrophic events in the Ottoman society, Balkan Wars. So the Ottoman administration lost all the Balkan countries. Bulgaria, Romania, Serbia, Bosnia, Greece left uh, the Ottoman Empire far earlier than those countries, and they got their independence in 1829 as the first ethnic group having their nation state in the Ottoman administration. So you can see that from 1829 till the, uh, 1914, all those ethnic groups left Ottoman Empire and they have got their nation state. And in these periods, in 1908 and 1920, uh, those Ottoman elites were trying to create their own concepts to hold Ottoman society together. The first one was Ottomanism. You know, it's like Americanism, you know, being proud American. So they promoted that it doesn't matter you are Eastern Orthodox, you are Muslim, you are Armenian, we are Ottoman. It didn't work. It didn't work. The subjects didn't buy this. Well, the concept was there, it was promoted, but it was not bought. The second one was, okay, in 1912 we lost all those Christian nation states, now we are all Muslims together, let's work for pan-Islamism. We are Muslims together, let's stand together. Well, it didn't work. Why? The Arabs wanted to have their nation state. And during the World War I, they fought against Ottoman armies together with Brits. So pan-Islamism didn't work either. That concept didn't work. And then they ended up with Turkism. Okay, we are Turks. Let's stick together and be modern, Westernism, and a little bit socialism. That's the last three that they had to grasp. And 1919, 1938, establishment of Republican democracy, and of course, Ataturk years. And 1938 till all the way to 1982, we have got the our journey in democracy, human rights, freedom of speech, secularization, and let's see how it worked. Okay, there is a typo here. I apologize. I don't know if you will find it. Okay, Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, born in 1881-1938, and without understanding these guys, we cannot understand the secularization in Turkish society. So I put two pictures of him. That will give you an idea who he is. The first one is as a young Ottoman officer who became a national hero in 1915 because of his uh, leadership in Gallipoli battle. So this battle in World War I lasted nine months and it's the second bloodiest uh, battlefront during the entire World War I. 
And in one part of the war, this young colonel stood up in front of his soldiers and he said that, guys, I'm not ordering you to fight, but I'm ordering you to die. And today, in the meantime that you are dying, we will replace you with the new people. So this young fellow that you see on the picture said that. And during the World War I, Ottoman Empire lost every single battle except Gallipoli battle. And actually, this battle, this battle, through the last two centuries until 1915, it's one of the few battles that we won against the Allied forces. And that moment, Ottoman army, Turkish people, some Turkish generals, gained the self-confidence that, yes, if we stood together, we can do something against the Allied forces. And we will use that psychology, we use that psychology in our independence war. So, the emergence of a new hero. And the last picture I, will, I purposely put there, please look at his death date, 1938. And we switch the eight to the eternity. His legacy, his name is always with us. As the, father, as the father of the Turks in his last name. Ataturk means the father of the Turks. Well, for the liberal, secular people, they like that. For the non-secular and some really devout religious and people, Ataturk is not a good figure in Turkey. And we have both groups. What is, okay, when he was a soldier, we got our independence war against the Greeks. We defeated them several times. And finally, the Greeks were defeated in Smyrna, one of the seven churches in the book of Revelation. Uh, they, believe it or not, they had to jump into Aegean to swim back to Athens. September 9, 1922. Okay, as a general, he completed his mission. But actually that day, he said that our real fight is starting today to modernize this country, this nation. And that's why I think the best definition for Ataturk comes from Lord Kinrose, and the typo is there. I say the birth of a nation, actually the name of the book is Rebirth of a Nation. I miss, I mean, I miss the re. That's the name of the book that Lord Kinrose wrote as the biography of Ataturk. He didn't say great hero, he didn't say great general, but his life is the rebirth of a nation, Turkish nation. Okay, Turkish independence war. I'll give this uh, slideshow later on so you can go into the details, but I told you that September 9, uh, 1922, we won our independence war against the Greeks, and that's the irony of the history. The Greeks had their independence war uh, a century ago against the Turks, and the Turks had their independence war against the Greeks a century later. No wonder the Greeks and the Turks don't like each other. I don't know why they like this guy. Yeah. But the role of religion in independence war was important. This time, we lost those non-Muslim ethnic groups. They are living in their nation states. We are fighting against them for our independence, and that time in our independence war, they used that, yes, we are Muslims, yes, we are Turks, 
So those two concepts were rising up to unite and reinforce those fighting groups. So religion played an important role in our independence war. And of course, the result is the emergence of a modern country, Turkey. Um, just related to the subjects today, um, I would like to show you two cities. I don't know if you can see Syria. Above Syria, there is Arraqqa. That's the ISIL or Daesh headquarter in Syria. And then here you can see Mosul. That's the, the biggest city controlled by ISIL or Daesh in Iraq. And their proximity to our borders are like 110 to 150 miles. And we've got the longest border between Turkey and Syria, and then Iraq, Iran, Armenia, Georgia, Bulgaria, and Greece. And that's why I always say that Turkey is a beautiful country in bad neighborhood. Okay, Atatürk stands for religion. He established the country, secured the borders, and we have got this nation state, but this guy made a speech in 1926, and he said that religion is a conscious issue. All people are free in following their own conscience. We respect religion. We do not oppose, though. We only try to avoid coinciding religious affairs with nation and state affairs, and to avoid intentional and actionist conservative movements. Actually, this is the summary how he approached the religion. And I would like to say that the period of Ataturk was the most influential era since the secularization was carried out through radical reforms. In Turkish history, it was the most radical era, radical era towards the transformation of Turkish society on secular lines. It happened between 1923 and 1938. And still today, it's a, it's a valid uh, expression. But one thing I would like to say, um, the secularization did not happen in Turkish history as an evolutionary process. It became a revolutionary process, coming from the elite, from the top to the masses. In Europe, as evolution, continued till the 20th century. That's the biggest difference. Okay. And in early 20s and 30s, at the establishment of the Turkish Republic, our founding father emphasized two elements of our, uh, our new young republic. The first one was a secular modern state. Secularism was founding pillars. And the second one was the Turkishness. There are pros and cons. So the Turkishness, promotion of Turkishness, throughout those decades, initiated the Kurdish resistance in identity. And we have got a Kurdish issue today because we promoted Turkishness, Turkish language. And we ignored Kurdish language and the Kurdish culture. That's why we are suffering today. It was good and valid that time, but we didn't make the transformation from there in the changing world. And secularism, though, 
coming from the elites, it did not reach the masses in the way that we wanted. So secularization in Ataturk era. First thing, he outlawed caliphates. And it's relevant to our contemporary issues because Baghdadi, the leader of Daesh or ISIL, proclaimed his caliphate's role. What does caliphate mean? It means that he is the ruler and protector of the entire Islamic world. And the origin of this title goes back to 7th century AD, after the death of the prophet of Islam, Muhammad. His successor named himself Caliph, and the name of the office was Caliphate. And this office changed uh, from hand to hand, and in the 16th century came to the hand of the Ottoman sultans. And Ottoman sultans kept that title till 1922. In 1922, the Ataturk, not Ataturk, I wouldn't say the Ataturk, the Turkish parliament, new parliaments, uh, abolished sultanate. That's it. No monarchy anymore. But kept the office caliphate. Two years later, they realized that it doesn't function properly, so they eliminated caliphate. And we have got the first civil constitution in 1924, but believe it or not, in the time of, of Ataturk, the constitution says that the official religion of Turkey is Islam. Day one, we didn't say that the, this is a secular state. In 1928, four years later, they eliminated that uh, article from the Constitution, so there's no official religion for the state. And 1937, for the first time in our Constitution, we wrote that Turkish state is a secular state. But all these secularization process, you know, like... So the Turkish woman didn't stand up and fought for their rights. The hero said that we have to give freedom to our ladies. So they could vote earlier than France, earlier than Switzerland. But that right was given to them. 1930, uh, 1934, they got the right to be elected, to hold the office. But they did not fight for that. It was given. They were not even aware. And in 1924, the literacy rate in Turkish society was 10%. If you ask anybody that time, what is secularization or secularism, they wouldn't know anything. The literacy rate of the ladies were less than 1%. So you can see that it's not evolutionary, it's revolutionary. Okay, founding fathers aimed aim something good, but how much it reached to the society? That's the question mark. And my question is this, how much have they been grasped and practiced by the masses? One thing happened in 1924. Okay, Ataturk eliminated all the religious uh, institutions, schools, and secularized the education, no ed religious education in the school anymore. But still, people had to teach the religion to their kids. 
And that subject was left to the families only. They said, families will take care of them. But some people step in, of course, and ask the questions. Religion is a part of our life. So what they did, they established religious affairs directory. In 1924, and the responsibility of this directory was, really, if there is a religious issue uh, emerged, theologians, learned men, will come together and they will talk about the tradition and the scripture and they will produce an answer. That's it. That was the role. That was the role of that religious affairs directory. But secularism one side and then a religious affairs directory run by the state on the other side, well, it's a contrast and a tension in the secularization. You know, state is involving in this process. Even though it's good intention, there's an involvement. And then one party regime came after 1938 and 1950, and this time, the masses started to receive the effects of the secularization. They have got their religious needs, but there's no organization, so they are searching for that. They are searching for that. Some people are stepping locally, and they are emerging as religious ideas, and religious affairs directory is there, and they have got demand from the state that, well, we want to learn our religion. So in this period, we know the emergence of the religious courses in the schools, state schools. It's not mandatory, but if you want, you can register your kid to the state schools and they can learn about Islam. Good. There is a demand from the society, so you give it, fine. And some other things, but there is a demand is increasing from the society about their needs for the religion. State is standing behind little bits, and some conservative politicians, not against secularism, but to organize the religious needs of the society, step out as the politicians. And they criticize the policies of this one party following Ataturk secularization. And they got response from the society. In 1950 election, the second party got more than 400 seats in the parliament, and this secular party got 69 chairs. And we have got the involvement of Islamic ideology in Turkish politics. And I call it manipulation of Islam in politics. And in 1961 and 1982 constitution, two army coups happened before this one, this failed one. 1961 constitution and 1982 constitution. So in these two constitutions, they gave more responsibilities and rights to that religious affairs directory, a state institution in a secular state. And what are those? Both constitutions redefine the position of the religious affairs directory for controlling and manipulating Islam, institutionalized by state's hand through Sunni Hanafi tradition. So the Muslims are not homogeneous. So the Turkey, majority of the people are Sunni, but from Hanafi tradition. So there is Shafi, Hanbali, and other traditions. 
But this affair, this religious affairs directory, promotes more Hanifi tradition. And also, the state is responsible for the religious affairs as public service. In other words, they define religious service, such as religious education, providing imams, or religious uh, priests, or reverend, or pastors, to the people as a public service. So they have got a huge staff now in Turkey. Pay, their salary is paid by the government. And that's the, the handicap of the Turkish secularization, starting all those years. And one thing, the other denomination in Islam, such as Alevites, Jaferis, Shia, Yezidis, or Shafis, and non-Islamic groups were not represented in this religious uh, affairs directory. So issues of Turkish modernization. One thing, Turkish modernization could not exclude Islam as part of Turkish national identity since religion is always one of the elements of national identity, coming from our independence war, coming from the demands of the society, and the politicians had to address this issue all the time. So my conclusion. In our constitution, the formal definition of secularism is the separation of religious and state affairs, and states standing at equal distance to all beliefs and believers. However, on the other end, there is a contradictory application of secularization through religious affairs directory. Not only controlling Islam, but also using it as a source of formal ideology and reproducing state hegemony and legitimation of its existence through religion are not secular applications according to official defi definition of Turkish constitution. So in constitution level, we are secular, in the application, we are not. We have got our own defaults. Okay. The relationship between state and religion. Very simple. The first one, state under hegemony of religion. A theocratic state. Turkey definitely is not. Religion under the hegemony of the state. With the existence of religious affairs directory, yes. Separation of state and religious affairs, according to constitution, and our life, believe it or not, in our social life, you will find secular people in Turkey, and they are secular in their life. So, in this conclusion, there is Turkey as a political system and as a society. Where you can put Turkey. As a political system, it's something between religion under hegemony of states and separation of the state and religious affairs. We are two and a half. Neither two, neither three, two and a half. We are lukewarm. As a society, we are more close to the separation of state and religious affairs. So we have to do something in our political system to be there. And in this situation, we came to the last 10 minutes, and I say that from now on, it's nothing is written, because it's all my speculation. Somebody from Turkey might come and speculate totally different. And my sources, as an ex 
uh, Turkish West Point graduate and military guy. I have got friends, colonels, or one-star general, their ranks today. Some of them were put into prison five, six years ago for being accused to involve a military coup against Erdogan, even though there wasn't any coup, they were accused and they were put into the jail. And they were Kemalist, liberal, secular officers who were blamed with the fake evidences and fake trials. And they stayed in prison a couple years. Okay. And Turkish media, as I mentioned, and some other sources, intellectual world in Turkey. So President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, this guy, when he was elected for the first time in 2003, a couple years later, there was an incident in Egypt, and he was invited to the Egyptian parliament to make a speech there. And there, I guess it was like 2007, and he said that my Egyptian brother, to be able to bring peace into your society, you have to be secular. That's your, that's your solution. So he is promoting secularism to Egyptian. Thus he does secularization in Turkey. Frankly, in my standpoint, he is not against secularization or secularism. But many years, many years, Kemalist secular elite group, elite group did not respond to the needs of the masses in the name of religion and religious identity. And many conservative politicians use the sensitivities of those religious needs of the people. And Erdogan is no different than former politicians. There's no politician in Turkish history came and opposed against secularization. But they had to work on the needs of the society at the bottom. And when he came, when he came to power, he is the first conservative religious politician came to power in such uh, number in parliaments. And the first thing he did was, he said, I don't want to work with this secular Kemalist elite group who does not permit young Turkish ladies to cover their hair and to go to the universities. When I come to the Whitworth University a couple of years ago, I saw young ladies coming from the Muslim world covering their hair and walking here. They couldn't do it in Turkey. He came to power 2004, he changed the subject. It was a big issue in my society. If you look at the subject from the point of freedom, it's correct what he did. On the other side, on the other side if you operate yourself with the fear factor that he's changing secularization, it's not correct. It's something like in the United States, you are Christian and you cannot put a cross here. It doesn't make sense to me. If people want to put the cross or the Star of David, they should do it. As long as they don't put that business into the relationship. But in Turkey, the ladies could not cover their hair and go to the universities. They couldn't work for the state. They couldn't be the teachers. And he changed. And all the, all the bureaucrats resisting to these kind of changes, he got rid of them and put new bureaucrats but when he came to power, because in the political agenda of Turkey for 60 years, 
They didn't have bureaucracy coming from the same mindset of people of Erdogan. So what he did, he chose a religious group who focused on the education in Turkey. And the name of that group is, I don't know if you are familiar, Fethullah Gülen. This guy is a cleric, came into the scene in 1970s, 1970s, and he promoted education, humanity, dialogue between the religions, but those years, at the end of the 70s, Khomeini came into power as Islamic revolution. I don't know how much he was influenced by those, uh, those genres. And his society got bigger and bigger. Eventually, they controlled $20 billion overall business. They have got schools, uh, more than 100 countries. Believe it or not, they have got 40 charter schools in the United States. So from 1970s all the way to 2002, uh, almost 30 years, the members of this society grew up intellectually. So when Erdogan came into power, he needed intellectual background when he got rid of all those Kemalist and secular bureaucrats. So he implanted the members of this society into every aspect of the bureaucracy. High police officers, high judges, and everybody. And they were good buddies. Gulen society and Erdogan society they define themselves, we are two different societies, but we are walking on the same direction. We are partners, partners in crime. 2007, 2008, they started to put some of the generals into the jails. They were all secular Kemalist generals. By blaming them that they are planning coups, what does it mean? Turkish army, American army, it doesn't matter. We play on the war scenarios. So army comes and what are the global issues? What are the regional issues? What are the domestic issues? And we write scenarios. And according to those scenarios, we find the solutions. And one of the major scenarios domestically in Turkey is how, how non-secular, if non-secular people come to power, what we will do. It's a scenario, but you have to play the game. So they took some of those scenarios and retyped some sentences in between with the font, with the font of the Word document that doesn't exist even in that time of the scenario. They are fake evidences and claiming that they are written in 2005, 2006, but the fonts are from 2009 and take the case to the court, those generals were sentenced with 10 years, 15 years, some of them lifetime. And when you bring that evidence that, sir, you are the judge, look, the font doesn't fit. These are all fake documents. Well, the judge is from Gülenist society. Say, I don't care, 15 years. From 2007 till 2011, they are buddies, partners in crime, 2011, Human greed interrupted this process. We do not know why, but they clashed. Gülenist society and Erdogan group clashed by saying that you are here because of me. Erdogan says them, you are here because of me. One side holds all the bureaucracy, the other side holds all the political power and the society. 
So the fight between 2011 and 2015, Erdogan used those fake trials, court issues, against the high judges from Gülenist society, high-ranked police officers who created those fake evidences. So he got rid of them. One group he couldn't touch was the army generals coming from Gülen society. And that's 2016. What happened in 2016? The army prepared the promotion list of the generals. And usually in, at the end of July, July, um, they take the decision that these generals will be promoted, these generals will be retired. And they were retiring all the generals from Gulen society, all of them, at the end of July. But July 15, those generals rose up, made the coup. Then I was in Greece cycling. That was their last chance, because Erdogan was, how do you say, swiping? from the scene. But one thing that they miscalculated, they thought that those crew people thought that if he starts something against Erdogan, Erdogan opponents like Aydın or those liberal secular people will stand up and come to the streets, revolt against Erdogan administration. But people like me will say that while well, Erdogan came as a result of elections and he will go with elections, not with a coup. If I'm not happy with Erdogan, I'll go and vote against him. Totally opposite, Erdogan lovers came to the street and fought against those coup people. They couldn't win that battle. Several reasons. The nation was against them. Erdogan lovers or Erdogan haters, it doesn't matter. Everybody was against the coup. The second one, they were a group in the army, not the entire army, and they were working for the not for the greater goodness of the nation, the greater goodness of their society. So they were destined to be unsuccessful. And that puts us to July 16, 2016. What happened after that? All my tours canceled. I'm on holiday. Six months. Great. A lot of time to think. But I was depressed. The reason for that, in my personal life, in Turkish West Point, they trained me to fight against enemy. From the age 14, I grew up with machine guns. All my trainings, a target in the form of a human being rose in front of me, and I had to shoot either from heart or from the head by thinking that that's enemy. And one day, they needed me, I will do it. But the day that we had the coup, my classmates, who were trained to fight against enemy, their enemy was their classmate. Some people supported the coup were my classmates, and the others who fought against them were my classmates. So it was devastating for me, personally, coming from the army background, seeing Turkish army in that situation. And especially if you're a country in bad neighborhoods. I wish that my neighbor was Canada, <laughs> but not. 
So I will say this way, that Turkey is in a vulnerable situation right now because our military is not as powerful as before. One of my classmates, the best brain, I will say the best brain of one of those 1,000 cadets, was put into jail three and a half years. Shame on me that I didn't go and visit him when he was in, in jail. And he was restored. He came back to full position. Next year he will be one-star general, and he's the chief commander of my city. And I went him to apologize him, to say that when you were in jail, I didn't come and visit you. Here I am. When you are in position, I come and see you. But what, what happened is those secular liberal generals were restored to their positions now. They are against the coup. They don't want to, uh, they might not like Erdogan. They might not support Erdogan, but they will not make a coup. They will fight for the greater goodness of the society, not for the greater goodness of a society. Sorry, uh, one minor group, but the Turkish society. So we learn. One step in a time, 60 years, Kemalist elite secular group did not permit those religious groups to come into bureaucracy. Then the religious groups came into bureaucracy. They did not permit those secular people to come. And we destroyed the competition in between. I hope after this collapse, we will learn that in our society, we will not work or operate with nepotism, but we will work and operate with quality. Regardless of their stance, we will put the right person into the right position. I hope we learn that in this process. Thank you. Yeah.